Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, here in downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining. Really cool interview to share with you this evening. Paul Salapek. Now, a little bit of context about Paul before I run this interview. And I think I, I have a feeling we're going to have a good conversation on the common board during the show at WFMU.org. Paul Salapek um, is walking across the world. <laughs> he's, he's walking this, this round, you'll hear him describe it in, in the interview, that matches the route of human migration out of East Africa, across the Middle East and Asia, and then up through Eastern Russia into Alaska. And then he's going to go all the way down the West Coast of North America, Central America, South America, ending at Tierra del Fuego. And you, as I said, he'll describe that uh, later in the interview. But if you have been listening to the show for a while, you may know the story already because Paul was on the show uh, about a year ago, on April 25th, 2022, talking about the walk and the experiences that he had had up to that point. Now, just to give you a, a, a little timeline, as of his first appearance, Paul had been walking for about nine years. Can you imagine? Nine years. And yes, he takes an occasional break, but then he goes back to where he was before and he picks up. And so he had been walking for nine years. And last year, I asked him, what is, what is it like when you are walking into a village and you are maybe you're accompanied by a walking partner, but you're a stranger? <clears throat> How's the hospitality? And you can go back and listen to that interview. But he basically said, the more we adopt, this is what I took away from the interview uh, about a year ago, the more we, as, as a society, the more we adopt modern technology, digital technology, all of these systems for surveillance and control and so-called efficiency and productivity, the more we adopt all of those in our day-to-day -day lives and work, the, the lower the hospitality goes <laughs> to, from human to human being. And the more the distrust goes up, if you are seen, he, an image that he said that I haven't forgotten is you're walking along the side of the road and when cars zoom by, you can, you can see the looks on the, on the drivers and passengers' faces that they seem distrustful of someone walking. Here we, we're in the age of cars. What are you doing walking? Whereas when he would go into traditional villages where cars and smartphones and pavement and cell towers and skyscrapers and all those things had not yet arrived for the most part, uh, there was a higher degree of hospitality because people were more inclined to connect human being to human being without technology in the middle, which in here I'm making a, a, a little subtle reference to last week's show in which we talked about the Apple Vision Pro face jail, excuse me, the augmented reality headset, which intends, which proposes to serve as a gatekeeper between you and the entire world, which is just the, the logical conclusion of where all this technology is going. So th this conversation with Paul Salapek is a good counterpoint to last week's show. 
And it's a continuation of our conversation with Paul a year ago, talking about what are the effects of high technology, digital technology, modern or maybe postmodern technology on real human lives and societies and, and ecosystems of plants and animals and weather patterns. How are we affecting not just human relations, but everything else on Earth as well with our uh, unquestioning adoption of and devotion to these new tools and gadgets. Now, what, what prompted me to bring Paul back on the show is that his, he's, he's, walking, he's walking the world. The, the project is called the Out of Eden Walk because it started in where, where we think humans first arose. And this Out of Eden Walk is, uh, is funded by National Geographic. So I think officially he's a National Geographic explorer, I think. Um, but anyway, he, he writes, Paul Salopic writes these updates for National Geographic, both the magazine and the website. And Paul just came out with a, a, a beautifully written and beautifully photographed piece. He, he wrote it and he had uh, photographers take these beautiful photographs uh, of his walk in Southwest China. So basically where he has been walking since we talked to him a year ago and what he found in Southwest China, and that's, that's if, you, if you know China at all, it's like if you know Xi'an or Chengdu, it's like southwest of that. It's near the Himalayas. And he walked through, and you'll hear him describe, he walked through villages and societies in that part of the world that have not fully, for the most part, they have not fully adopted all of these new technologies. And it's somewhat unique in his walk so far, this little section of the world in southwest China. that The change has not been coming very quickly yet. And so he had some reflections on what he calls the, quote, handmade world. The article in National Geographic, I think it's on the newsstands now, uh, it's called A Handmade World. I actually made a mistake in the interview. I called it The Handmade World, but it's called A Handmade World. And there's a, uh, there's, it's, on, it's online on the website as well. There's a link to the website article. It's called Inside the Factory of the World. There is still a corner untouched by machines. And uh, you can find that on the playlist at wfmu.org or on tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the playlist link for June 26, 2023. And so that's why I'm so excited to have Paul Salopek back on the show and talking about what he has seen and what he has been thinking about in the last year of his walk. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Paul Salopek here on Tectonic on WFMU. And if you'd like to join the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments, and we're there. Here it is. Which... Paul Salopek, welcome back to Tectonic. It's good to be back, Mark. Paul, you were first on the show on April 25, 2022, talking about your Out of Eden walk across the world, which you started all the way back in 2013. Now you have a new piece out in National Geographic called The Handmade World about your walk through China's Yunnan province in the southwest of the country. 
Now, when you entered China, you thought you'd be in a land of, as you write, a machine-powered society of hyperactive megacities, punctual bullet trains, overlit malls, and robotic ports. Instead, in Yunnan province, you found something very different. What was that? I found a a region of of East Asia that has basically been explored only globally, only recently, I think, as a tourism, an ecotourism destination, say in the last decade or so. But it's much, much more than that. It is a crossroads on almost every level, ranging from geologic to human. It's where these tectonic plates slam together. The Indian plate hits the Eurasian plate, pushing up uh, the Himalayas. So it's got a very complex topography. It's a political crossroads. Uh, several different polities go together there. It's, it's China, um, Burma, uh, Northeast India all come together in this region. It's culturally a crossroads as well, um, partly because of its geography and its history as a, as, a, as a pathway of human migration. It's got a very complex mosaic of ethnicities. Now, officially, China recognizes 56 different ethnic minorities in the country. And if you go by that metric, then about half of them live in Yunnan. So uh, 25 or 26 different um, ethnic groups, many of which speak their own languages, inhabit this area. So I found a, a remarkable landscape that was kind of a margin lands, kind of a frontier through history, through geological time, through culture, and even biogeographically, because it's also a hotspot of biodiversity, given all this complex topography. So it was a real eye-opener. Um, I was astonished, actually. You write about Yunnan province that it offers a rare accommodation between people and landscape and the all-but-forgotten possibility of humans and nature coexisting in a compact approaching harmony. So even with all of this diversity in landscape and minorities and even the proximity of several different countries and cultures, it's interesting that you talk about the harmony that you find on the ground there. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, as, as you mentioned, Mark, I'd, I'd gone in. I've never been to China, by the way, until um, this project. So I'd gone in with the usual stereotypes, the kind of two-dimensional cartoon stereotypes of China being you know, the workshop, the factory of the world, this kind of gigantic parking lot, right? That's just, you know, bustling with activity, industrial and post-industrial and digital activity. I think the remarkable reason why a Southwestern Yunnan in particular, I walk through Southwestern and Northwestern Yunnan, uh, and, and that's a very distinct part of Yunnan because east of there, it sort of flattens out a bit. So the mountainous Himalayan region of Yunnan was an eye-opener because their economies were still, in many cases, pre-industrial. And what do I mean by that? I mean, basically, rural, muscle-powered economies where a lot of the activity, farming, shepherding, even manufacture, was still done by hand. And so it was like a bubble in time, uh, stepping back a bit to you know pre-19th century even, before the introduction of mechanized agriculture in Europe that spread everywhere else, and turned the landscape that we now live into, you know, today is in the Anthropocene is basically a landscape that is shaped by our machines and increasingly for our machines, right? Concrete, plastic, you know, sheetrock, glass, steel, cellophane, uh, whatever you wish when you touch it. 
these are materials that are made by machines and also kind of cater to the structural demands of the machinery that makes them. They have very little to do with human anatomy. And here was a place in southwestern China, a country that manufactures a lot of this stuff, right? <laughs> and exports it across the world. That's right. Where people, large numbers of people were still living the way maybe our great, great grandparents did. And not to romanticize, you know, rural lifestyles, you know, Gandhi was called a rural romantic by his critics, not to, you know, be sentimental about the hardships of pre-industrial life, it's hard, or even under development, if you want to look at it through that prism. But what struck me was, here was a, here was a corner of China that was a, really, really old, and B, when I walked through it, it felt really at home, even though I'd never been there. And I guess as I started thinking about the reasons why, one of the underlying factors that bubbled to the surface of my consciousness, and it started to extend even beyond Yunnan to other corners of the world that I walked through over the past 10 years on this project, is that... If you accept, you know, evolutionary theory that we evolved in Africa 300,000 years ago, we've been living in a handmade world all that time until just a couple hundred years ago, right? And it's sort of maybe baked into our collective unconscious or limbic memory of, you know, living in communities that are handmade means that, you know, they're scaled to the human anatomy. Houses are built to your body's shape and size, indeed individualized to the shapes and size of the bodies of their owners. We're talking about individualized doorways, right? They're not mass produced. They're not manufactured in a factory. The people who live in that house build their own house. And indeed, the tools that I saw being used in Yunnan in these villages, handmade villages, were themselves handmade, handmade tools. The fields that were being you know, planted or harvested were hand plowed or plowed using draft animals still. The, the trails that I walked on were, were not designed for wheels. They were designed for foot travel or horse travel still. And therefore, they moved like music, right? They were full of curves. They were curvilinear. Very little is straight in the natural world. So that's why I'm talking about kind of this aesthetic harmony with nature herself came to the fore as I began walking through this extraordinary and unexpected landscape in southwestern China. And I thought, wow, you know, this is kind of a bit of an epiphany for me. I grew up in a, in a village, a, a rural village in Mexico. And so I've got this landscape embedded in memory. It was a bit like stepping back into my childhood, to be, to be honest. I thought, this is one of the, the mass extinctions that is happening in the 21st century. People talk about you know, species extinction, people talk about cultural extinctions, language extinctions, but here's here we're facing an aesthetic and almost psychological extinction of this connection with our ancestral home, a primordial home that we've made with our own hands. Nothing is straight. Nothing is perfectly symmetrical. Everything is kind of organically put together and it feels good, right? It feels good because it's built for our bodies that are connected to our minds. And it's vanished. It's almost gone everywhere. And it'll be gone in this part of the world, too. And, and that's as it should be, perhaps. I mean, the, you don't want to create museums out of human landscapes. You, you have to follow what, what the local people desire. And I'm sure many of them would love to have a paved road and then, you know, an internet tower in plastic and glass and concrete. But I think stepping back from that and just speaking kind of almost aesthetically, I think we miss this. I think we miss this organic, handmade, human-scaled, body-scaled, 
built environment. And it's, you know, we may not even have a name for this yearning. We don't even know why we miss it, but I think it's just very old and it feels good. It feels like home, feels comfortable. It's not alienating like machine-made landscapes. And it's maybe why we, you know, take airplanes across the world to go visit places like, you know, Cumbria or, or what have you, right? Where things look quote unquote pretty because they're relic handmade landscapes. They feel familiar, feel comfortable. They feel like home. Yeah. I love this image that you write about in the piece talking about the design of homes. As you say, they're, they're personalized to their owners. You write that the lanes between homes were built for pedestrians and were exactly one human arm span wide. For reasons I can't fully explain, it was a comfort to walk them. It was architecture that revealed a single human life, not a demographic of millions. So here we have true personalization, not through some digital algorithm of personalizing <laughs> to the data that they've surveilled on you, but it's an owner or a community building a house for a person or for a family. And the lanes between the homes, rather than being paved for two giant SUVs to pass each other, are one arm span wide, you said. Were there other aspects of the built environment that, like the home and, and lane design, you found comforting like that? Yeah, I think even the rural landscape, the working landscape, if you will, which has been farmed for thousands of years by hand, you know, this is a lumpy landscape. We've just, you know, been talking about it. it it's, it's precipitous in some places. There's a gigantic gorge. I think it's the second deepest gorge in the world. Tiger Leaping Gorge cuts through this area, and, and I walk through it. There's snow-capped mountains. They call them snow, snow mountains, these kind of pyramids of white that shut up on the, on the horizon from the eastern Himalayas, and then plummet down from these Arctic subalpine or alpine ecosystems down to, you know, bamboo forest. It, it, it's that diverse. But the working landscape is shaped also by the limitations of human muscle and animal muscle. Um, so yes, tractors are moving in. I saw tractors. Um, people are using motorized transport um, in back lanes uh, increasingly. But there were still a lot of small garden farms that were being hoed by hand. There were a lot of bigger plots that were being uh, farmed by, by mule. And just because the scale of that rural economy is much smaller and more biology-based, even the shape of that landscape became more anthropomorphic. It just sort of even looked like the human body, right? Kind of soft shoulders that were being farmed in terraces, hip bones, you know, bellies. Well, you said one of the plots, rather than being rectilinear, had an amoebic shape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they move with the shape of the land in a much less intrusive way than if you had a combine, right? Or a bulldozer that would go in and just flatten those slopes to maximize surface area um, using a laser leveler, which is what, you know, modern, you know, agricultural machinery uses. Uh, no, it's like you, you get up in the morning and you go with the flow. You're not going to level the side of a hill. You know, you'd have to be nuts. Who, who can, you're, you're putting in a, a crop of, of whatever, potatoes or corn, and you're going you're gonna to go with the shape of the land. So the land has this textured feel. It's both natural, but it also has the overlay of the human thumbprint on it in a gentler way. And I think that's why it struck me as being so pleasing 
right? It, it seemed like there was kind of an, an agreement, a compact between the rural humans who live there and the landscape itself. You have this great list in the piece of occupations that you encountered in Yunnan province. Pot menders, walnut oil pressers, eucalyptus oil distillers, chili grinders, by which you mean people who grind chili, not a little um, handheld implement of a chili grinder, basket makers, mule packers, wild mushroom pickers, backyard textile weavers, and axemen. And I'm sure that's just a partial list. Did people seem happy with these occupations or did they, seeing the modern world encroach a little bit, did they seem interested in picking up machine tools and digital devices and looking for other modes of work? You know, I think when I would have these conversations with the actual Yunnanese farmers who were doing these artisanal kind of tasks, these, these, they're engaged in this kind of artisanal level economy. I think they said that, you know, if you put an extension cord up here, I'll be happy to use a power tool, right? And, and there's absolutely, that's normal. That's human. Yeah, I would too. It's a luxury for somebody like us to kind of walk into an area that stirs this memory of a pre-industrial landscape because it's so rare globally and to have kind of a nostalgia for it. And, and then it's another thing to tell people to kind of live that way, right? Of course, you would never do that. I think given the opportunity they would invite in concrete roads. And in fact, the government is building concrete roads like crazy. They have a, a program, it's called Village to Village, which leaves no hamlet unconnected by concrete. And, and it's, it's zooming ahead. And there'll be a cluster of six you know, stone houses up in a gully somewhere on the side of a mountain, a dead end. And you'll find that there'll be a concrete road going up to it, very expensive. It's changing fast. And, and I don't, absolutely at all begrudge these farmers for wanting it to change and wanting to join was this kind of a almost a post-Anthropocene world, right? Where it's not just, you know, that we are reshaping the world to our needs and appetites, but now it's our machinery that's reshaping it to their needs, to the needs of machinery, right? You know, I, I walked in China through big solar power panel farms that went on for kilometers and they were arrayed on mountainsides and on mountaintops, on ridgelines, with no thought really for accommodating people to be there. This was, a, this was a mountain that had been transformed for the technology, for the needs of those machines. Uh, ditto, you know, once I reached North America to these data, you know, centers for Google or what have you. There are, as I understand, enormous warehouses that are cooled and, and monitored and air purified for the needs of the machines, not for humans. In fact, you don't even see humans there. This is a, a, a machine-built environment for machines, and that's, that's the next thing that we're headed to. In, in Yunnan, in Western Yunnan, the people who were still maintaining this free industrial economy were mostly older people. There were people probably no younger than in their 40s and up into their 70s because the young people had gone to join the global economy in the cities. So it was a very kind of interesting and poignant world to move through. It was an old world inhabited by older people who were conducting an older way of existing. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. 
My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Paul Salopek from the Out of Eden Walk, Walking Across the World. Paul's been walking for 10 years, and he is describing what he has seen in the last year or so in southwest China, in Yunnan province, as he wrote about in a National Geographic article that just came out called A Handmade World. Again, there are links to the article and the walk and other resources on the playlist at WFMU.org. That's also where we're having a good live listener chat if you'd like to dive in or just read. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview now with Paul Salopek here on Tectonic on WFMU. What I find really interesting about what you just said is the farmer who says, if you bring up a a power cord, I'd be happy to use it. You said, I would do the same. And you know, Paul, I would do the same if I had some hard manual task that I've been doing for years and there was a machine that would make it 10 times easier. Of course, I would try it. But we see the result of millions or billions of choices on a daily basis of people choosing the convenient option that's offered to them by machines that we're in this system that is not sustainable for our ecosystems, for biodiversity, for the future of life on the planet, at least human life um, as we know it. I don't think it's sustainable in the long run this is the question that I think your piece, The Handmade World in, in National Geographic, is bringing up, at least for me, which is how do we move forward in a world where the machines, on an individual basis, they're offering convenience that people want in the moment, and yet on a global or systemic basis, it's not driving us to a healthy outcome for, for humans to live on the planet. As you say, the We're now in a system where the machines are now building a landscape that serves the needs of the machines, you know, the data centers and so on. So what do you tell the farmer back in Yunnan who says, bring me up an extension cord if you can? As you say, you don't deny someone their desire for a more convenient tool. On the other hand, when you have the machines speaking, sort of, and saying, we need to take over more hilltops, more mountainsides, more fields that used to be farmed, and we need to put down data centers, solar farms, cell towers. How do we accommodate both of those, Paul? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know, because what you're talking about is very complicated and cuts across so many big questions about what we face in the road ahead in the 21st century. I'm basically using this story, which is kind of talking at a philosophical level about the nature of home, the nature of the lived environment that we've built for ourselves to ask these questions. And I think the conclusion, if there is one, is that we can't deny people, and who are we to even make this decision? And we, of course, we can't. It's not our decision to make, you know, whatever the benefits of, of 21st century technology brings humanity including the vital one of food production, right, which is existential. However, having gone through the industrial process and the industrial, the post-industrial phase of, of economies, 
at a global scale. I think a case can be made that, as you point out, it has very concrete and also almost metaphysical challenges. The, the physical challenges are ones that you just cited. It's, it's, you know, resource depletion, which leads to conflict, climate crises, vast pollution issues, water supply. You know, it, it just goes on. The list is really long and it's familiar to the point that people's don't want to hear it anymore. The point I try to make with my story is that feel free to call me a rural romantic if you wish, but who is more deluded? Somebody like the farmer who is living within her economy, the economy of the human anatomy, and who has these traditional skill sets, this kind of traditional knowledge about how to live sustainably versus people who, who consume all of this stuff that's coming out of the, the post-industrial world and who are blind to its cost, which is mounting and, and becoming explosive. I don't know, I guess my, my chips would come down on somewhere in the middle saying, you know, use these technologies to make human life easier, happier, more enriching and rewarding but maybe go to the farmer who wants, who, who would love to have a concrete highway through their valley with all the accoutrements and, and you know, the, the universe that will change when that concrete highway goes through. Go to these farmers and ask them, teach us. Before this comes in, teach us. How do you plant seeds on a steep slope in Yunnan? which gets torrential rains, monsoon rains that in other places would wash away the soil. Teach us, include us in these traditional knowledge systems that are based on sustainability so that we can have some data bank to rely on in helping us navigate a more constrained future, right? And to help us maybe refine technologies to make them less wasteful and softer on the environment, softer, more harmonious with nature, right? I don't think it has to be an either or, uh, and it probably never will be. I think there we have permission to lead complicated lives and to try to harvest the lessons that the ancestors have accrued over 300,000 years of living as a part of nature with the last couple hundred years where technology has appeared to separate us from nature, even though we aren't. It's a, it's a delusion that we're separated from nature, but technology buffers us so much if you're from a rich country. So that's my answer, I guess. That's a great answer. That helps me, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> Teach us. I'm struck by something you alluded to in the piece that time is running out for us to learn these things because these farmers in Yunnan are old. You mentioned that before. The, the younger people have generally moved into the cities and joined hyper-modernity. And you give an image of things finishing up over there. You write, handmade tiled roofs were already collapsing, releasing a thousand years of memory. I wondered who would remember how to subsist this closely with the environment ever again? To me, that says, Paul, if we want to ask for the farmers to teach us, we'd better get on it right away. And we're also racing against the predations of the tech economy, 
which knows no boundaries. The tech companies are primed for what they believe will be infinite growth. They will stop at nothing. So the default is the data centers and all of everything that we just listed before, those just take over and pave the earth. Whereas the farmers, they're not growth at any cost. They're not getting in our face saying, we need to teach you, we need to teach you. It's a complicated answer, yes. And there must be a way for us to live in harmony with these machines. But the tech is so pervasive and insistent that as a response, we have to default to being much more insistent about learning from the farmers and the indigenous communities before it's too late. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe a, a trickle against a tide, but it's happening. I think, it, and it's happening because paradoxically, the richer we become, the lonelier we tend to become with our machinery. And that creates a psychic and emotional dilemma that begins to subvert this endless cycle of growth, right? That's based on an economic model of predatory markets, right? Um, what's happening now is that, you know, the children and grandchildren of these Yunnanese farmers who live in places like Shanghai or Beijing or Guangzhou, you know, in, in giant apartment office towers that are like beehives, and then they're working, you know, as the Chinese say, 996 from 9am to 9pm, six days a week, they're finally kind of asking themselves as a cohort, the demographic cohort, like, is this really a meaningful life? And some of them are questioning the basic tenets of this economic model based on the ever-expanding horizon of technology that is, that is itself, I, I would say, a chimera. And some are going back to Yunnan. Some of these kids from Shanghai, their ancestors may not even be from Yunnan. But, you know, hundreds of millions of, of Chinese have moved into the cities. It's one of the biggest mass migrations, if not the biggest in human history, the urbanization of China. You know, 20, 30 years after it all happened, a certain number of them are going through the same kind of ennui that the Western world went through. And it's a similar process, you know, a few generations ago. So there's a back to the earth movement that's nascent in China. And where did I run into these young people? In Yunnan. Yunnan is, in fact, one of the magnets for this backflow of urbanites, generally kind of digital natives, people who are symbolic manipulators, uh, who can work off of a computer anywhere, moving back to small communities in places like Dali, near Lake Urhai in uh, western Yunnan, where the climate is congenial, where, where they can actually construct a new sense of community that's more intimate and less alienating than the hustle and bustle and exhaustion of these big mega cities. And where I think, not coincidentally, to come back to the theme of my this particular story, the built environment is human. It was built by humans for humans, and the human hand is everywhere to be seen. Wherever you lay your eyes, even just to rest your eyes beside the trail, if there's something that's altered, it's been altered by a human body and not a bulldozer. And I, I would argue that that makes a huge difference internally in your, into, into making these landscapes harmonize with your internal landscape of just feeling like you belong there. Yeah. I mean, you write about in the piece going into the cities of Baoshan and New Delhi and finding the same, as you say, homogenized glass and steel habitat 
that we could see anywhere in American cities or anywhere, any other country, down to the Starbucks, you said, that was <laughs> cloned down to the bean. You write, I felt as if I could thrust my hand through each cookie cutter building as if in a hologram. So there's this feeling of illusion that you get from the machine built environment, which, by the way, was heightened. I don't know if you've followed tech news on your walk, but Apple just released this headset that they want people to strap on their face so they can interact with the entire world through a screen filter that really blocks their actual vision and actual connection from the real world completely. And everything you see becomes essentially a hologram. This is the future that the money and power behind tech want to take us toward. And what a contrast it is in what you're describing, a human-built environment for humans that feels comfortable and it's something you can rest your eye on. I'd much rather live in that sort of world with the right amount of technology than to see the world careen off the cliff into uh, this this hologram, this unsustainable hologram type of existence. Yeah, I, these are yeah huge questions, and I you know I'm with you in spirit. I you know it's basically living your life through a screen, even a fancy one. I, again, I come back to this point that I think it's a built-in dilemma for technologies that are headed in this direction because I think it ultimately creates dissatisfaction uh, at some level and their customers. And so they have to keep devising different screens. And it's it's not the coding that's the problem. It's we're carrying around these Pleistocene brains in our Pleistocene bodies. And they these brains have not changed since machinery was invented. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a Luddite. If I didn't have modern technology supporting me personally, I would be dead a long time ago because my eyesight is so terrible. <laughs> I would have walked off a cliff and the gene pool would have been cleansed by a very weak uh, <laughs> uh, genotype. So I need to make that clear. And I use technology all the time. I use screens to tell my stories to 99% of my audience. But that said, I think it creates a sense of dissatisfaction because we're still carrying around, we're living our lives in these packages, these, these phenotypes that have evolved have real-world interaction both with the physical world, the concrete world, which is, you know, running your hand along the side of a building made of stone, hand-hewed stones, where it's not identical machine-pressed brick. Every single one of those stones is unique, and they fit together beautifully, and it feels good, just like it feels good somehow to sit out in a small square in a Yunnanese village with the shushus and the ayis, right, the old uncles and the aunties, to shoot the breeze as the sun's going down and the day cools off. Yeah. You know, I think we miss it. We miss it, even though, again, we may not even know that we're missing it. That's right. Because we're so we're so distracted by so much else. But I think, you know, again, it's one of the great gifts of this project of the Out of Eden Walk is, you know, I and my walking partners cannot be on screens. I mean, because you you would walk off a cliff. And so you basically are thrust into a body-based world where you get sensory input 24-7 that you have to react to. And that, that includes good and bad things. But the good news is, is that our bodies and our minds have adapted over 300,000 years to deal with it. 
where I would argue that what you just described, our psychology has not had a chance to catch up with it at all. And we're kind of lost in it. Yeah. We just have a couple minutes left, Paul, and I wanted to ask you about the Out of Eden walk. Here we're talking about your story in National Geographic, about your walk through Yunnan province. You've been on this walk for 10 years, which is so incredible and impressive to me. What's next? How are you doing on the walk? (laughs) And what's next for you? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, um, the project started in, uh, give a recap, just in case, you know, you have listeners who who don't, you know, follow the project, which is highly likely. We don't have a, a massive following, um, is the project started as a storytelling project in 2013 to rewalk the corridors of human dispersal out of Africa back in the Stone Age. And why? To kind of slow down the storytelling methodology, the reporting methodology to kind of make a a gigantic global experiment or laboratory in slow journalism to see that if we could connect the stories that bubble up by the thousands in our phones every day, if we can connect them together with some sense of of meaning by walking through them, right? And show how all these different stories are interconnected. So left Africa in 2013, walked through the Horn of Africa, through the Arabian Peninsula, through the Levant, um, through Turkey, uh, the Caucasus, Central Asia, South Asia, and, and now two years into China. And China's really, really, really big. I think it's, it's going to be the biggest country on my entire route. And I'm probably going to end up walking close to 7,000 kilometers here. And I've walked about, I, I just had the numbers and I've forgotten what they are, but I think they're somewhere around 4,500. So I'm like two-thirds of the way through China. Uh, the idea is to continue. Uh, I'm, I'm in Beijing right now. I'm taking a bit of a break to catch up with a bunch of writing and do research about northeastern China, uh, Dongbei, which is kind of a, a sub-Siberian ecosystem, and then cross over into North America and walk down the length of the, the Americas to Tierra del Fuego. So all of that is still in the cards. All of that's still on the map. And uh, I'm, I'm behind schedule, but I think for good reasons because the world's an interesting place and I've stopped a lot to, to write stories. And increasingly, just to kind of add that something new is that we've had our first exhibition here in, in China, in Shanghai, of the creative work of our walking partners. And I think we want to really, going forward, emphasize the fact that it's not already clear is that this is not a solo journey. This is not Paul's walk. It's a collective effort in that I would not have made it even a hundred kilometers, much less all the way to Beijing with local walking partners who are far more than mere guides or translators or logisticians. They are oh curators of this storytelling project. They bring their own stories and their own deeper understanding of the of the landscapes that we're walking through. So we had an exhibition that's ongoing in Shanghai, Walking China, um, that highlights the work of my Chinese walking partners that includes you know, photographers, uh, videographers, drawers, uh, poets. And we're going to continue doing this to emphasize the the um, shared nature of this journey. Building community even as you walk in order to write about and um, publish photographs about what's happening to our human environment as technology continues its march, uh, decreasing community and increasing isolation, as you say, um, so I, I really appreciate 
what you're doing, Paul. And I very much appreciate you spending time with us again on your second time here on the show. I hope that you'll come back a third time when you have something else like this Handmade World piece to report on. What's the best way for people to keep up with you and the Out of Eden Walk? There are two ways. One is social media. Um, We post all of our work there that then links out to a website. So at Out of Eden Walk on Twitter or on Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Facebook. Again, Out of Eden Walk, um, just as it sounds, will lead you to the storytelling. And basically, we have a tempo that is like one story every week or two weeks from the trail. And it could be, it's usually, I'm a writer, so it's usually, you know, an essay or what we call a dispatch, but it often is accompanied by photography or uh, video. And we also just audioized all of our stories. Uh, an amazing program with National Geographic Society funded was to get an amazing reader to kind of read all the work that's been done so far. And it's, I think it's more than half a million words. Uh, and she has gone back, Lucy McNeil has gone back and, and read the work. So for people who might have, might be otherly abled, um, or who just prefer to to absorb their storytelling through the ear rather than the eye, that library of listening is there. And I'll put links to all of those resources on the playlist at WFMU.org. Uh, Paul Salopek, keep going. You're an inspiration, and we're hoping for every possible success for you in the Out of Eden Walk project. Thanks again for being on Tectonic today. Thank you, Mark, for having me back. It's a pleasure always. Just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 10 minutes of the show. And then the great Dave Mandel comes on with his prog rock show called It's Complicated. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. We just heard my interview with Paul Salopek, who's walking across the world. He's been doing that for 10 years on the Out of Eden Walk. He's got a new piece in National Geographic called A Handmade World, or if you find it on the National Geographic website, it's called Inside the Factory of the World, There is Still a Corner Untouched by Machines. And indeed, that's what Paul was describing in this interview, walking through Yunnan province in China, in the southwest of the country, and seeing farmers and villages and societies in that region relatively untouched by modernity. As we were saying, the cell towers, skyscrapers, superhighways, cars, smartphones, all of those are relatively absent for the moment, but they are encroaching and the farmers are, they're, they're getting older. And so this is our last chance to As Paul said, ask the farmers, teach us, teach us how you farm on those steep slopes in monsoon season where in other parts of the world, the soil would just get blown right off by the, by the rains. And here you're able to farm successfully. How do you do that? These are things that you cannot look up 
on ChatGPT. <laughs> I mean, for all of the uh, praise and hosannas that we hear about for new technology every week, oh, AI is going to do amazing things. ChatGPT can answer any question. We know nothing compared to what traditional and indigenous communities know about some of those practices of farming, stewardship, sustainability. We know nothing comparatively. Uh, and if we just rely on our tools and these large language models, we're, we're headed for disaster. We're going to be impoverished by relying on these tools rather than going to people and communities who have been living in harmony with their environment for hundreds or thousands of years. Why would we let that go and just throw our lot in with Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? Oh, because they're going to put us on their spaceship to Mars. Right, because we figured out we can't do anything on Earth, so we might as well go to another planet that's totally hostile to us. Anyway, um, the other thing that, uh, oh, a couple of things I wanted to say about, I just want to pick up on that Paul mentioned at the end. He mentioned that they have turned all of his updates from the Out of Eden walk into audio. They have audioized them, as he said. They're, I, I wouldn't call it an ebook exactly, but they're, but they're um, narrated. They're read by this narrator, uh, Lucy McNeil, and there's a link to that. Uh, called Painting a Picture Through Voice, the new Out of Eden Walk audio narrative. There's a link to that on the playlist at WFMU.org. So if you want to listen uh, while you're doing other things or you just want to listen on the couch or however you want to listen, you can listen rather than read. I think that's a good way to also keep in touch with what Paul is doing. Uh, there is also, I posted on the playlist, uh, two maps of Paul Salopek's route. One is his route so far, and another is a zoomed-in version of his route just through Yunnan province and, and mentioning some of the places that he talked about. If you want a better sense of the geography, and I, I certainly had to check that because I'm a, little <laughs> I'm a little hazy on that geography. Although I have been to Chengdu and I have been to Xi'an, uh, a few years ago, my family and I took a trip over there, and it was, I mean, it was amazing. We did not go into the countryside, really, but it was exactly, as he said, the uh, industrialization uh, near the cities and even in the suburbs. There would just be, all I can describe it, these apartment towers, it was like a forest of apartment towers. I have never seen anything like it. It's like these, they're, they all look the same, each little forest of these towers. They all, they all look cloned. And they're all about, I don't know, 30 stories tall or so. And it's just like boom, 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 boom. That's all those are buildings in a place that used to have been a meadow or a forest or who knows what, some usable part of land. And now it's just they're all cement towers housing people who are working in the cities. And those are people who might have in a previous generation uh, been in Yunnan province on some of those farms, extending those traditions. Although, as Paul says, and he's, I completely, completely agree with him, let's not romanticize all of this and get nostalgic. Here I am sitting in the New York City area saying, wouldn't it be nice if, if people would, would stay on the farms? I mean, come on. Uh, they get air conditioning and indoor plumbing and internet access. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of modern conveniences that 
most of us listening are, are used to. How can we say someone else should not have that? But I do think that there's an opportunity for all of us to think about what's the path that we're on? Do we want, because the tech companies are taking on a, on a path that I talked about last week, they want to lock up every part of our experience in, in the form of these gadgets, whether it's smartphones today or tomorrow, the face jail that you got to strap on your face, that they will determine, these four or five companies will determine your entire experience, your entire connection and engagement with the world, with other people, with the natural environment, with, with any kind of commerce or culture or art, all of it has to go through them as the gatekeepers. And that's a completely terrible, terrible idea for our society. And what I hear Paul Salopek talking about is there in Yunnan province, people are doing the opposite of that. They're actually living in harmony with nature. They're cooperating with nature with, with no technology locking anybody up. And again, I don't want to romanticize this, but I do want to say that those communities know something that we should learn from. I don't, I'm not saying we all need to go live on a farm, but we can learn from that. We have to figure out a way forward that's not Mark Zuckerberg's way, not Jeff Bezos' way, not Elon Musk's way, but some other way that can include technology, but is not defined, that we're not defined by it, that we're not ruled by it, that we're not imprisoned by it. And a good first step, I think, would be to be insistently enthusiastic about learning from traditional and indigenous communities before it's too late. And that's about all the time I have. Um, I got I to I gotta get out of here. Dave Mandel's going to come on with uh, another episode of It's Complicated. And uh, I'll tell you what the outro is here in a second. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And you've got homework, friends, for next week. Your homework is... Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And for our final song, this little outro, before Dave Mandel comes in, I think the great Moondog has something to say about our connection to nature. Enough about human rights. Have a great week, everybody.
I think I lost the first few seconds of that opening opening theme. Should I play the whole thing again? Should I play like when we were kids we would we would show up show up to a movie when it was halfway over and then and then we'd stay to the end and then stay again until the part where we came in. So we'd see like the second half of the film and then the first half. So should I do that with the intro theme? No, I won't. Anyway, good evening. Welcome to another exciting installment of It's Complicated. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8, following the great and powerful Mark Hurst and Tectonic. Great to be here, always. And I'm going to start tonight's show with a record I've been listening to a lot. I, I, I'd kind of forgotten about it, and then I remembered about it just recently, like last week. And and it's been stuck in my mind and stuck on my computer since then. I'm talking, I'm referring, of course, to the solo album from Rick Wright, Richard Wright, keyboard player from Pink Floyd. I've been, I realize I've been hitting on a lot of solo LPs from Prague guys the last few weeks, right? I played John Anderson's solo album, Patrick Moraz, what else? Steve Howe. No, I haven't played that yet. I'm going to I'm going to play soon a track from the Steve Howe's solo album. This is this is going to be something from Rick Wright, Richard Wright's solo album. The album is actually credited to Richard Wright, but he often went by Rick. And of course, he was the keyboard player in Pink Floyd and I would say the most underrated, absolutely most underrated member of the band. Uh, he had an absolutely heavenly, and he had, past tense is right, because he's no longer with us, I'm sorry to say, died a while back, uh, had just an absolutely heavenly voice, and, and the songs, you know, relatively small number of songs he wrote for Pink Floyd and sang were all beautiful, just a gorgeous voice, singing lead or even singing backup. So he put out this album in 1978, solo album, called, called Wet Dream, uh, really, really beautiful cover, by the way, beautiful uh, 
very saturated, very vivid color photo of someone lying on a boat in the in the sea somewhere. Um, and uh, what else? Not much more to say about it. I'm going to play a track called Holiday, and this is Richard Wright. Sure. 